You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 154 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before I get the show on the road, I want to thank Patreon number 5 and 6, Christian and Mike. And if you become a patron yourself, be patient for me to eventually give you a shout out. Since I record many episodes in advance, I'm always behind on giving credit to new patrons. But it will come eventually. And uh, again, thanks Christian and Mike for supporting the podcast. And if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. And uh, when you are a patron, you can get access to these episodes in advance, as well as a bunch of other material. Right, in this episode, my guest is Dr. Joe Tafur. And the reason this man is on the podcast is because he has written a book called The Fellowship of the River, a medical doctor's exploration into traditional Amazonian plant medicine. So, of course, we are going to talk about ayahuasca, but we cover a lot of other topics as well. So, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. So, could you explain a bit about who you are and and what you do? So, I'm Dr. Joe Tafur. I am a, a medical doctor family medicine doctor from the United States that um, also uh, well, just wrote a book and released a book this year called uh, The Fellowship of the River, traditional, it's a medical doctor's exploration to traditional Amazonian plant medicine about my journey uh, into the Amazon and getting involved there with the uh, traditional ayahuasca shamans, uh, Shipibo healers that are practicing traditional Amazonian plant medicine and, and treating foreigners who are arriving to uh, Peru and South America. And I got involved uh, in a healing business there, New Era Centro Espiritual. And so I worked there for six years and um, participated in, in the treatments as well as uh, uh, went through the training myself to become an ayahuasquero and within the Shipibo tradition. And so during that time, I observed a lot of uh, amazing healings. And so I wrote a book about the healings that I observed or some of the healings that I observed and kind of my theories about how I think that Western medicine and and something as <clears throat> apparently distant as people shamanism, you know, the, the intersection between those two um, around the treatment of, of, of the people that I observed. So those are the basics. So I'm I'm a doctor, and I, I completed training in, in ayahuasca shamanism and a traditional healing center in Peru. And I have my book describing the the experiences and trying to share what I've learned. So what kind of medical doctor are you? I'm family medicine doctor. So in the United States, that's a it's it's basically like a general doctor, but a little more training, a little bit more. Uh, there's a residency involved, three years after medical school. So I'm a family medicine doctor, we call it. So how did you discover uh, ayahuasca and the uh, Shipibo way of, of being a doctor? Right. Um, I discovered ayahuasca because kind of as I, <clears throat> as I described in, in the book, I, I became uh, depressed in medical school, you know, and I was really struggling with depression and trying to find uh, some help. And eventually, I grew up in Arizona in the United States, and here there's uh, the peyote tradition. Um, so there's the peyote cactus, which is used in, in spiritual kind of plant medicine ceremony here in, uh, in the United States, but also here in Arizona, there was a place that you could go and do it um, that I got connected to. And I had a big healing through peyote just more effective than anything else and just one night of such a dramatic shift in my mental health 
that I became very curious about that. And I started to, to go to a few more peyote ceremonies. And um, eventually, my family's from Colombia. My parents are from Colombia and all my aunts and uncles and my older brother was born there. So I was aware of the ayahuasca, what they call yahe in Colombia. And I, uh, I knew that there were, I had started, you know, I was curious about that. I'd heard about that through some family and friends. And because I was finding so much interest kind of in the peyote, I was going to become very curious about ayahuasca. And then I, I started hearing about and learning about how people were going down to Peru and that some of the people like Shipibo shamans were kind of opening up their tradition to foreigners and sharing it with foreigners. And so then I, I decided I wanted to go check it out and had the opportunity to, uh, to go with my friend, you know, for the first time who had already been to Iquitos and was comfortable with the idea of doing ayahuasca. And so then I went and uh, I happened to be directed. I, I was trying to figure out where to go and I had some friends and connections. As one, one of my very good friends was the, a researcher in psychedelic kind of clinical research. And so he knew a lot of people. And so I was advised to go to a particular healing center uh, where I ended up meeting Ricardo Amaringo, the shaman that, I, that I've been working with. And uh, that was a Shipibo tradition there at that center. And then I just had a very huge experience there and was really impressed with what they were doing and what kind of results they were getting with people. And so I started to go back to that center and eventually started leading groups and started meeting other shamans. And then at some point, Ricardo um, wanted to start his own center. And he asked if I would help along with a few other people with Svita Mamic and a few other people that helped us. And so we decided to do that, you know, and through that process of, of working with people down there at the healing center, I, I became more and more interested in, in going through the training myself. So that's the basic story. Did you ever have time to work as a like a, a Western medical doctor before this whole adventure began in America? Yes, a lot. So I finished my medical training in 2006, you know, a resident. But so here you're finished with medical school in 2003. At the end of 2004, I'm a licensed medical doctor. So I'm working as a doctor, as a resident, you know. So and finished my residency two years working as a doctor there, and I started moonlighting as an urgent care doctor <clears throat> at one of the insurance companies there in California. And then from 2007 until well, so then 2007, uh, I continued to work as a doctor, um, family medicine doctor in urgent care and primary care settings in California. And then I began doing research at UCSD um, in the Department of Psychiatry and kind of mind-body medicine. And at that time, I was also still working as a doctor, a part-time. So I continued to my work as a doctor while I did research at the lab. That went on until 2009. And then um, in 2010, as I came back to, uh, to Arizona, I, I worked as a doctor. That was my primary job. So I worked as a family medicine doctor in primary care. And been doing that throughout the entire process because uh, that's how we were raising money to build the center in Peru was uh, one part of it. And Despita was also putting money in as, as an investor. And I was coming here to work as a doctor, going back and forth, like, you know, three or four months in the Amazon, two or three months here in Arizona working as a doctor. So I've been working as a doctor throughout all of that time. I don't know if this is true, but I imagine that it's a sort of double life in the sense that the two worlds, like one of them at least, the modern medical world, does not uh, have much respect or faith with the traditional healing ways. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that, uh, I mean, it's a... <clears throat> It's not, you know, there's this, there's kind of a difference. I always bring this up because he, Ralph Metzner says this to me when I was talking to him. He's just, you know, science is not medicine. Science is not medicine. And so working as a doctor and being a physician and being in patient care is a different kind of work from the scientific, you know, world and whatever image they're putting out there. And so 
doctors and nurses and people that work at clinics, a lot of them are generally interested in patient care. You know, like they actually are interested in people getting better. So I find that a lot of the people that I worked with <clears throat> were very curious to hear about the kind of results that we were having um, just out of curiosity around around patient care. You know, it's not like they, they weren't so worried about the philosophy and all that stuff because they're more worried about, about treating people. And so I didn't encounter a lot of resistance, you know, and as far as people not respecting it. So then they're hearing it from me as a doctor who's working at that place, you know, and is taking care of patients and is doing a good job and and is part of the team. So I think they respect me as a friend and, and an individual that's contributing to the work that they're doing. So coming from that place, it's like, I guess they're kind of curious to hear what else I'm doing. So they might, you know, not agree with the classic stuff that people kind of want to just walk away. Oh, no, they said this. They said this word. They said that word. I'm done. I don't want to listen anymore. But I find that people are actually quite curious about things like that. And ultimately, the, uh, you know, that was my focus. It was like how, how to draw a connection between those two worlds, you know, to explain it more easily, that, the, the commonalities. In other words, I'm not talking about just some random thing. It's like this is a real human being that has been diagnosed with depression. This is a real human being that's been diagnosed with migraine headaches. You know, this is a real human being that's been diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And they've been through all the medical care and then they went and they had this other form of treatment. And no matter what you might, you know, as far as your personal belief system, you know, slash your religious beliefs or whatever, however you hold science, you know, to your heart, <clears throat> you know, this, this patient is not really that concerned about any kind of resistance you might have to, to, I don't know, some kind of expanded consciousness that might be necessary to really understand what they went through. Because, you know, they've already been to the doctor for, in some case, decades. And now they found help through a different paradigm. So I just think it's not so, you know, it's not such a battle when we focus on the patient care and the individuals. And that's when I talk to people. I get that. And then, I don't know, I've been going around, I've been talking. I talked at USC um, Medical School. I talked at, at UCSD Medical School. I talked at uh, U of A, Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm going to speak at Yale later um, in 2018. And I just think there's more interest, you know. I get it. What people are, are you know, the things that they find a little bit hard to believe but you know how can you blame them for finding it hard to believe so i think it's like the lack of like i'm not going into it uh, in kind of an antagonistic attitude towards them you know and i think that the culture in general and western culture and european culture like there's just so many elements that are actually not that far away my family's from colombia you know so it's not maybe it's easier for me to relate but the things that I'm asking people to relate on are, are very basic things like emotion, you know? So it's just, it's, it's the denial around emotion and the, the denial around feeling that's uncomfortable for people to hear about, you know, because that's going to ask them to, to look inward and deal with themselves. And, and that that's where people get uncomfortable, but the people who are comfortable with that, I find that they're kind of curious. The reason I asked was because where I live in Europe, there is, well, you know, one thing I do, not every year, like every four or five years is I do a colon flush. And I know, I know from my own experience that it really helps me and it is good and it works for me to clean out the system. And uh, the woman I go to, uh, she told me that she has many medical doctors and they have the same kind of job as you do like family doctors they they come to her and they come there in secret because if their hospital or where they work would find out they go and do a colon flush they get fired because uh, according to the official opinion of the of being a doctor you are not supposed to talk about colon flush you know, for as an example, so that's why I was asking. Pretty dramatic. I mean, I don't know. I almost find that hard to believe that they would get fired for getting a service that's available and legal within the country. I don't know. You know, that sounds like 
you know, what if the doctor doesn't like that you go to, um, I mean, I, I don't know, but I'm not sure things are at to that level where somebody would get fired for getting a colon. Like here, for example, uh, colon flush, we call it a, a colonic, you know, it's, it's legal, it's available. And so it's really a private matter if people want to go and explore that. It's not covered by the insurance system or the doctor system, but they're not out to stop those people from doing it. You know, there are, of course, there are other areas where it is, you know, with ayahuasca parity where they treat it as it's illegal and all that kind of stuff. But a legal treatment leading to firing of a doctor, I don't know. Is that is that really true? Well, it, this is secondhand source, of course, but maybe it's an exaggeration. But at least uh, there was this thing that they were they were like ashamed. <laughs> yeah, they're ashamed. Yeah, no, and that's that's too bad. And there's a lot of there's that's you know that's just ridiculous that culture you know. And so there's a lot of um, arrogance, you know, in the Western medical culture. And this idea of shaming people for stepping out of, I mean, why would, you know, it's like, why would you be shamed for that unless the people themselves are very ashamed of themselves? Like, what would it even be in any interest of theirs at all unless they're carrying some kind of massive shame that they're just looking for a place to put it? You know, so I, I just think those issues around the close-mindedness they seem to be, from my experience and what I'm learning, very wrapped up in people's kind of emotional health. You know, the stubborn, closed-mindedness that's very threatened, a belief system that is so threatened by other belief systems, can kind of indicates kind of an emotionally unhealthy situation. You know, like, if no one's being harmed, why would it be such a threat to their belief system, you know, other than that, are they worried about the economic threat that people are going to, you know, like what difference does it make? But I know that, I know that my dad is a doctor and I grew up kind of with that older generation of doctors and yeah, they, there's like a lot of animosity, you know, against chiropractors or against this or against that and the charlatans and the, um, you know, the quacks as we say it here and trying to make sure that people aren't being taken advantage of. But then now you know, we're learning how, how corrupted, at least within the United States, you know, the medical thinking has become that the pharmaceutical industry, you know, and the way that, that research and the journals have been kind of manipulated to the point where you have, you know, heads of like New England Journal of Medicine editor, uh, editor of Lancet, a huge journal in, in, in England, you know, and them stepping down and saying it's totally corrupt. The journal is corrupt. So it's just kind of a strange position, you know, as it gets exposed. Obviously, we want to raise the standard of of uh, integrity in medicine and make sure that people are getting treatments that are that are safe and that are helpful and not, you know, losing their money. Uh, at the same time, you know, that's a problem within the medical establishment. And so they're really kind of running out of steam, you know, and the people are, are more open because, you know, the cases that I'm, I, you know, as I say, I'm as a doctor, I'm not against Western medicine at all. Uh, there are, of course, blind spots and there's not, it's not, you know, the answer to everything. And I think everybody knows that, you know, anybody that doesn't know that is, it's kind of a foolish perspective. But, you know, in the case, in the cases that I present in the book are people who all went to the doctor. They all went, they were all, you know, made sure to verify their condition through the lens of the established medical system and we're not getting help, you know? And so that's where you bring the human side into it again. I'm not saying like, so in other words, let's say you're this doctor that works at this place and they don't want you to get a colonic, but colonic is the only thing that helps you. So at what point does their belief system that the colonic is a shameful thing give in to their like caring uh, medical doctoring uh, perspective where they'd say, oh wow, you know, that's working for that person that I care about and it's not hurting them. And so in the case of this, you know, you have people, and, I, and again, you should be skeptical. And with the ayahuasca and the shamanism, there's a lot of room for problems and there's a lot of charlatans and there's a lot of uh, things to be skeptical about. 
that being said, we should still learn about some of these cases that are getting healed from problems that Western medicine has not been able to, uh, you know, effectively help these people. That's the major issue. You know, that's that's it. That's the logic, you know, because they wanted they're so logical. They're so rational. You know, that's where they want it to be. But it's like, well, the logic is this person is not being helped within the current paradigm. That's why they're exploring beyond the paradigm. And then you see the person who's so uncomfortable with exploring beyond their own paradigm. And then that seems to indicate that that person, what is the resistance with them opening their mind? What is the resistance with them expanding their consciousness? What is the resistance of them opening their heart to somebody who benefits from a colonic? It's like, well, probably they have some kind of trauma or something in there that's making them difficult, you know, making it difficult for them to open their minds and open their hearts. I think it's good that you as a doctor has written this book because I think it it gives the healing of ayahuasca more credibility, uh, which is needed because I'm sure many people refuse to do it because they see it as some hippie mumbo jumbo. But if they read a book that a doctor has written, then they might take it more seriously because that's how the Western mind works. Yeah, well, and that's part of the goal, you know. Part of the goal is for me to do what I can to try to help these healers down there. Obviously there is, there is some hippie stuff and there is some new age stuff and there is some shamans that are inexperienced and all that. But there are real healers there as well within the tradition that are doing things that, you know, some medical doctors do not know how to do. And so there's also kind of a, it's not just hippie cause it's also a little bit racist, you know, in other words, like, why is it that some indigenous tradition would not have some kind of worthwhile knowledge to share? And so for me as a Colombian, like, it's very important also, like, to help bring dignity to the tradition, you know. So, it, you know, so there, it's dignity to the patients that are receiving benefit from it and letting them, you know, giving them a framework to... uh to share and say, hey, look, you know, this explains it to their parents, to their friends, you know, who are, are very uh, concerned about it. And then for the shamans and the culture, it's like an attempt to show them, like to sh have them be shown in a way that shows, you know, the real value of their knowledge. And then, you know, building on the mix of those two things to try to develop some ideas that might give, you know, energy for further research and like learning about maybe a new level of science that we haven't yet explored you know, because of the mix. And so I try to explore that too. I want to talk a bit about Arizona because I actually went to Arizona quite recently. I did, I was only there for uh, three, four days because my, the main part of the trip was uh, California and, and uh, uh, mammoth giant trees and all that stuff. But <clears throat> I had to go to Arizona because it was quite close and I, I wanted to see the Navajo Nation and the Hopi Reserve, because I'm very interested in indigenous cultures. And uh, can you, because when I went to the Hopi Reserve, they showed me all these ceremonial chambers they had, and they didn't want to talk about what they did, but I suspected it had something to do with peyote or San Pedro. But Not necessarily, yeah. So, so the Hopi and the Navajo, they have their traditions that they do independent of peyote, you know, or any plant medicine. So there's a lot of traditions within the Navajo culture and the Hopi culture that are just pure, you know, prayer and ritual, like uh, a lot of places in the world, you know, like uh, whatever, you know, they have a lot of African traditions and, you know, just all the meditation traditions from the East, you know, whether it's India or China or different parts where, uh, or the Middle East, you know, where it's, or even within Christianity, you know, we have mystical traditions based in prayer and ritual in the absence of psychedelics. So that being said, that so in other words, the traditional locations that they have, the more ancient locations are probably unlikely to involve peyote and things like that. They might, but uh, the peyote tradition, peyote was traded and shared like throughout Northern Native America we don't know to what extent. And of course, like Navajos and desert people were exposed to that. And so there is a, there, uh, you know, there were probably peyote practitioners among them. But uh, the, nowadays, the Native American church 
that it's kind of one of the main forms of peyote practice in um, on the Navajo territory and Hopi territory is part of a a more modern, you know, practice. So they don't necessarily have a history of using psychedelics traditionally, and they've used some. I'm sure they use some peyote, but it's not at the core. Like I just talked to a Navajo medicine man last Friday, hanging out. You know, my understanding is not at the core of their their more ancient tradition. So, just for you to realize, you know that that there's a lot of spiritual traditions that are very powerful that exist outside of psychedelics. You know, and uh, that's true all over the world. There's some, you know, there's stuff out here. There's toad, you know, there's the the five methoxy DMT and the bufo and the toad and you know, to what extent did Navajos or Hopis get exposed to that? To what extent did they use peyote? You know, um, 500 years ago, I'm sure there was some use, you know. It wasn't necessarily at the core of their culture the way it is for the, the huicholes in Mexico or the tahamaras in, in Mexico. And, uh, and then with the toad, we don't have that much information about it, you know, even though it's present here in areas where there were Apaches and things. So I don't know. So, I mean, I think it's, I don't know. To me, that's so important, you know, because there's so much spirituality that exists outside of psychedelics. And there's a lot of people who've only encountered spirituality through psychedelics. And so they think that psychedelics are a requirement for spirituality. And I, I don't think that's true at all, you know. And I think the Navajos would agree with me, especially the medicine man I just worked with the other day. Yes, that's why I ask, since you are in Arizona. And also, there is also the other uh, part of the spectrum is that uh, they could also have have it very secret because of past experiences. But there's for sure there's that element too. You know, they're not very open. That's true. Uh, they might not have used it traditionally way back, but. One thing that always fascinated me was that uh, in many ayahuasca ceremonies I did in in the Amazon, I had a lot of uh, symbolic and visionary things and and saw things that were all drawn from the Native American culture and the way they look and the way their art looks which was very strange for me because I wasn't I was way very far away from there and Shipibo doesn't have the same style they don't use that much feathers and those kind of things so it could have been just my brain of course that I don't know but strange that there was such a connection for me because I I wasn't that particularly into Native American before that so that was was strange I'm surprised yeah, a lot of people have experiences with kind of northern Native American imagery, you know, in the ayahuasca. It's very common. And so, you know, it's it's a mysterious thing, but it's also Native culture, you know, in the Americas. I mean, it is interrelated. There's a lot of relationship between whatever the bloodlines of the people and and the messages of the culture and... The importance of, of nature and the culture and so it's just it's just gets into like you know mysterious things it's not so easy to explain why that would happen but a lot of people feel that connection to northern native america and and yes of course it's like that's a lot of imagery that people have been exposed to you know um because you know some people might be interested in uh like you know the indigenous swedish stuff you know like what i don't know about i've just seen like the laplanders i don't know if that's in finland or but you know you have some people living very close to nature and with some mystical traditions right there or you know i mean there's some of them that are still doing it but anyways it exists and so it's just it's the same kind of thing you know and so i don't know why it is but it's also maybe drawing an interest for people to native america and northern native america because it's a big, you know, maybe that's uh, that's what I'm getting involved in here in Arizona, and you know, maybe that's a big inroads into like how do we here, you know, so the United States of America, this whatever, this big, this large influential nation 
that has in its history and in its population, you know, these people are here still. And the kind of destruction of their culture and the denial of their role here is kind of part of the whole same problem, you know, the environmental problem and the greed problem. And so it's like, I think it's important for people to remember Native American culture, Northern Native American culture. For me, because as it relates to what's going on with the United States today, you know, and maybe reopening the door to Native American culture might help us here, you know, to understand some things. It's impossible for you to know, but if you ever come to this part of the world and you visit what you call Laplanders, make sure you call them Sami because Laplander would be like the N-word or Redskins. <laughs> good. Yeah, that's good to know because, you know, I don't, that's how they talk about it here. You know, we would, I would never even know that. I just saw, have you seen that movie Cuckoo? It's a movie, I think it's called Cuckoo. It's, it's Cuckoo. I don't know, I think it's a Finnish movie. It's a really cool movie that somebody turned me on to, this Hungarian that was there. I guess it's Sami, a Sami woman. And um, it's about World War II, I think. And this, there's a, a Swedish soldier that uh, he's like a prisoner of war that escapes. And then there's a German pilot that crashes. And they're both almost dead. And the Sami woman finds them. And her husband had died. So she takes care of them and heals them. And they can't speak, you know, neither one of them can speak each other's language. So they're talking at each other, you know in this kind of ridiculous way, trying to explain themselves. And, the, you know, the Swedish and the German, the German guy say, hey, we, we got to kill this guy. We got to kill this Swedish guy, you know. And the Swedish guy's like, hey, man, the war's over. Let's get over it. And the, the Sami woman's like, hey, I want to have sex with one of you guys because, you know, my husband died, you know. And I don't know, it's just such a funny movie. But then eventually it gets into a, a Sami kind of shamanic uh, healing that she does on one of the guys who was about to die and it's a cool movie i don't know somebody brought it to us in the center in in, in peru I, I just found it really interesting that sounds good if you can ever get a copy that's subtitled you should get uh, this one called sami blood which talks about which shows a very good way of what the sami people went through in the last hundred years uh, it's a very good movie I want to ask, uh, when I went to Navajo Nation, it still felt like Arizona, you know, it wasn't that, it, you know, there was more Navajo there, but it was still like the same kind of world. But when I went into the Hopi, you, I, it felt like I went into a completely, this is, now I'm in like Indian country or something. It felt more distinct. Um, is it like that? Well, yeah, because uh, the Navajos apparently are kind of like, they came into that area like they, I think they were more nomadic and so they kind of travel in and out of that area in a larger area and they uh, you know then with the reservations and stuff and kind of limiting their travel to that area was uh, was kind of there but the Hopis are from that place always you know like that's there those three mesas apparently some of the they claim, you know, the oldest living, the oldest structure in the United States that people still live in is in Hopi land, you know. It's like 3,000-year-old, uh, you know, little buildings. And so it is true, yeah, the Hopis are, that's their traditional territory, whereas the Navajos are, I don't I'm not an expert, but that they, you know, they've moved around a little bit and kind of have ended up there, you know, partially in response to just being put on the reservation, but also they were kind of in and out of that area traveling more frequently. So it is a little, I think that's probably, you probably felt something like that, you know, in their traditional land. Like they don't, they're not as mobile. They don't move around as much. What is it like in, in Arizona? Like normal Americans, are they separated from the Navajo and that? Are these two different worlds or are they proud of their Navajos or, or is it racism and what's the situation? I think it's, in, I don't think that they're, you know, for the most part, there's a lot of racism, you know. I don't think that you would say, I mean, some people are proud of it. You know, there's some pride, but it's not like, 
it's a sl it's, it's slowly growing. It's uh, there's been a lot of racism in the history of Arizona. It's known to be kind of a a culture that has been very racist. You know, it's slow to it has that reputation. It's not that there are, there are a lot of non-racist people here. There's a lot of people that are very interested in Native American culture here in Arizona. Um, but it still has a long ways to go. You know, there's still a lot of resistance and a lot of people that don't carry that, you know. Um, I was just hanging out with these Navajos the other day and they were talking about the, the racism they felt um, and that they've been growing up like that, feeling that racism and now they're worried because they see that their kids are being treated that way, you know. So it's still a problem. Um, and they're not as, in general, you know, I think there's a lot like the Europeans that I like, they come to the center and, you know, they're quite fascinated by the, uh, you know, by Northern Native America, maybe more than a lot of um, the average American. And I don't know how the average Swedish person feels about the Sami you know, culture, I guess that would be an interesting question. Well, it's uh, the same. It's like uh, Scandinavians, uh, the Sami culture is, is, is actually the whole of northern Russia, Finland, Sweden and Norway. But uh, uh, all these countries uh, and the people in them, they love, not well, I don't know if everybody, but, you know, they, they like Native Americans and they like indigenous people, but they think those Sami people are whiny bastards who should just shut up so it's very like uh, it's a hypocrisy <laughs> well it's just, it's the hypocrisy and so that's what it's like you know that's what it's like because just like they think all oh, the samis like they might be people who oh they act like we owe them something you know because they were here because they're the way of life or you know so people think that here like oh the indians they're giving them money the government's paying for their school or you know, all these different things. And because people are also poor, you know, whatever, white people are poor. And so they just, they don't understand why that person should get special treatment, even though they're not really getting special treatment, you know. So there's, it's like, it's more like that, you know. So that would be the beginning of understanding that hypocrisy is just looking at how Swedes treat Sami people. Then you'll understand a little bit more about the problem, you know. Yeah, I guess it's it's brainwashing from the government side uh, because, you know, in school and that it's, I mean, people read a lot, ch or children read a lot about Native Americans and what struggles they had, but nothing about what the indigenous here, what they suffered. And it's the same here, you know, and they're the same here. That was when we were hanging out with these people, the guys like, his wife is Navajo and he's teaching in an after school program and then he's reading in a book that this kid, He's showing them that, oh, when the Thanksgiving happened and the Europeans came, the English came, you know, the natives just moved out of the way so that to make room for them to come here. You know, like that's what it says in the textbook for the children today, 2017, you know. So for them that have coming from uh, families and cultures that have suffered so much, it's so sad, you know, for them. It seems so hopeless uh, for people to to respect, you know, their past. So it's one of those things, you know, it's a brainwashing. What do you see for the future of ayahuasca as a medicine in the, in the Western world, that it will be part of like going to the doctor and they'll prescribe it? Or uh, will it be like it is now? I think the first stages of it right now will... Uh, Right now, in the, within the United States, I can speak to that. You know, it's it's the angle of the, the current opportunity is within a religious context, you know. So here in America, we have the, the Unidad de Vegetal, the UDV from Brazil, and the uh, Santo Daime that are have been given, you know, some room to operate and do ayahuasca. And so other people, people like me, you know, trained in Shipibo traditions or indigenous shamanic traditions are also looking for kind of a spiritual religious context to practice in and uh, to try to see if that protects us from, from the law. And um, 
so that's how peyote is. You know, peyote here in the United States is kind of respected as a spiritual practice. So it's available for those people that are connected to that. And uh, and so I think at this stage, that's that's what's that's the next step. You know, and then. I don't know how much it's going to expand or grow. You know, I'm not sure. It's expanding and growing a lot right now. And so I don't know that the doctors, and I'm one of those people that, you know, I really believe in the shamanic context and all the benefit of that. And so I don't know that they're doing clinical research with ayahuasca, which is important. So they might develop some drugs or some pills from that, you know. But I think there will still be room for the, the kind of, traditional practice you know because of the results that people are getting and so i don't know exactly what that will look like in the western world you know i think as far as it expanding into medical care like it has a bigger chance of doing that in south america you know first so maybe that'll be a place where we see more of that and then here it's still just in the early stages you know i think ideally it would just be legalized kind of like marijuana and just something that you can find through your community, you know, through healers that exist and that that would really be based on like a, you know, an actual individual. So maybe your doctor lives in a place where they know there's an ayahuasca that can help them, but without really knowing too much about it, I don't know how the doctors would, I don't know. It's, it's unclear to me. I I'd like to see it. Um, just gain more respect and more understanding around it, you know, and the potential for it. But I do think that it should be, I'm of that kind of school that it's an organic thing. And I think the overly institutionalization, the over institutionalization of, of things is part of the problem. You know, that's part of why people are sick in the first place. That's part of why they're going to drink ayahuasca. And so I think we do have to let some things be a little bit more organic and let them breathe. You know, so I'm kind of more on that side of it. The only danger is there's, and I'm, I think actually they're probably a majority are those white guys who call themselves shamans who haven't really studied properly under a curandero or ayahuasquero. And uh, maybe they just went down and drank a couple of times and then now they're a shaman. And I guess what gives them away is, 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 is just by the title of shaman because the the shamans in 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 the Amazon are are usually called ayahuasquero and curanderos or or other n- names because shaman is is a white anthropological term, you know. Yeah, well, I think that you have to educate people. You know, I think people need to be educated, and you know, here in America, the population is treated as very very foolish. You know, so there's not a lot of personal responsibility placed on them as to like why would they go and just drink ayahuasca with some shaman you know you got to help people understand that it's not it's not as simple as that and that you have to be a lot more careful than that you know that it's something that requires a lot of care and so you would want to know quite a bit about who you're drinking with and you'd want to have a personal recommendation and it's tough it's tough to it's tough to control that or encourage that kind of thinking because it's illegal you know and so there's just everything's clandestine and and people are sneaking around, so how do you really know who's who? But that is so important, you know, because it's like there's a lot of fools. You know, there's a lot, there'd be a lot of people showing up to say, hey, I'm a doctor, and I'm a medical doctor, but then they don't, they're, they're not, or they don't have any proof, or they don't have any kind of reputation, or no one's done any kind of vetting or checked them out. Like, you wouldn't necessarily go to that person, you know. And even within the doctors, there are those people who, who do bad things. And so I think you just have, we have to call on the community to be much more careful about who they drink ayahuasca with and stop giving people like the opportunity. I guess these people always find someone to take advantage of, you know, but people should be more careful than that, you know. And so is making it illegal, is putting people in jail over it, like the solution to that problem? I don't think so. And so I just think you have to educate people and let people know these, so these substances are out there as it is. You know, there's people, the kids are doing LSD and mushrooms and all the rest of it, DMT. 
So like educate them as much as possible, you know, and let people know that, yeah, there's fake shamans out there. There's something to watch out for. You know, you shouldn't just drink ayahuasca because somebody says they, why would you do that? You know, why would you go foolish? I mean, I guess some people are desperate. They're looking for help, but it's not wise, you know, just to jump into ceremony with just some, anybody that you don't know anything about. That's really a very foolish thing to do. People often ask me for a recommendation of where to go. And I know tons of places that do it, both in Europe, North America and the Amazon. But I can only recommend the place or the places that I've been to, even though I've heard that those places are okay. I still don't never even say what they're called because before I've been there myself, I can't really vouch for it, you know. And that makes sense. You know what I mean? That's how it should be. You know, and some people want they want something more than that but it's like that's how it is and so there are you know there's there's organizations and in Iquitos there's the Ayahuasca Safety Association that has developed and people are trying to kind of come together as a community and at least have some standards that at least they would check themselves and you know they haven't quite it hasn't got to that point I think where they're giving like a certification but they want to And so there's things that are evolving to try to deal with this. But in the meanwhile, it's like people have to do their homework. You know, there's no easy way to do this. So if people want to read your book, where can they buy it? They can buy it on Amazon.com. It's selling in Europe. It's in English, but hopefully we'll get translated to some other languages. So on Amazon.com, the Fellowship of the River is there. By me with Forward by uh, Gabor Mate. And um, it's on Kindle and it's on the printed book. And the audiobook is almost done. Waiting for the audiobook to be finished. It'll be another option. And in the ayahuasca community, maybe not in the mainstream community, but in the ayahuasca community, Gabor Mate is quite a celebrity, I would say. He's, he's quite well known. But can you say a bit about who he is for people if they don't know? Sure, Gabor Mate is a medical doctor from Canada who is a, a celebrity because he's um, very accomplished. Well, he, he's a, he got involved in addiction treatment in Vancouver in a very kind of downtrodden part of Vancouver where there's a lot of heroin addiction and problems like that. And he dedicated himself to helping people with addiction and exploring that and He's very interested in mental health issues and has written a lot of books about mind-body medicine that have done very well when the body says no, kind of about emotional um, roots of illness and the way that that manifests in the body. Uh, There's also uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which is his book about addiction, which has become a very famous book, very comprehensively researched and well put together uh, knowledge information in the realm of hungry ghosts kind of talking about the roots of addiction that the roots of addiction are in large part you know related to emotional issues and in many cases childhood trauma and emotional pain versus some kind of physical uh, you know brain problem and then he has other books about ADHD scattered mind and you know he's just best selling author an incredible brilliant speaker that's been traveling around and he With all of his interest in addiction, he started getting involved in bringing people to uh, ayahuasca uh, through Shupibo healers uh, or Shupibo trained healers working with ayahuasca. And he's had a lot of success um, with that. So he's become a voice for the potential role of, you know, ayahuasca in treating addiction, but also just in treating emotional pain. And so he... uh, He had, you know, I was running a center in Peru and he had, we had been talking about a few cases, you know, he's interested in sending people down to Peru. Now he's getting more involved with the Temple of the Way of Light, but at some point was communicating with me about people that wanted to see treated in Peru and, and we were connected through the healers that he was working with. And so he was open to doing the forward to the book, you know, which was a real blessing for me. It was a great opportunity. And now his daughter-in-law is working on integration programs with him at the Temple of the Way of Life, Tanya Mate. And uh, so, you know, they're a big part of the movement. So it was a very big deal and an honor for him to uh, 
to do the forward for the book, you know, and his in talking to him about it, he's like, well, we're on the same team, Joe, you know, we're doing the same kind of thing. And then so my book is, is very much about a lot of ideas that he's put forth, you know, and trying to build on those ideas and just flesh them out through somebody who's been through working in the forest and the jungle more and working with traditional shamans more intimately and, and going through the training more intimately and then bringing my experience in, in science as well to the discussion. And do you have any websites yourself that people can check out? Yeah, I have drjoetafur.com. D-R-J-O-E-T-A-F-U-R. Oh, and I forgot to mention, of course, Niwe Rao Centro Espiritual. Okay, that's ridiculous. I'm not mentioning it. Just let me throw that out there. Niwe Rao Centro Espiritual is the center that I've helped found with Ricardo Maningo and Svita Mamich. And I'm no longer a business partner there, but I continue to consult there as a, as a doctor and help with the intakes of the patients. And I still bring groups there. And Niwe Rao has, has been a, a, a place that has had a strong reputation and has helped many, many people. And it's been a safe, beautiful place where a lot of amazing healings have happened. And I was just part of those healings this year and just brought three groups there this year and two groups earlier or other people were there earlier. And so that's the book talks about the healings that are happening at Niwe Rao and Respiritual and under the care of a, uh, of Shipibo healer Ricardo Amaringo, you know, my teacher. So that's niwerao.com, uh, which, like I said, I'm not a business partner anymore. I'm just I'm promoting them as another safe place where people can can learn more about and explore. My uh, website is drjoetafur.com, D-R-J-O-E-T-A-F-U-R. So there's links to the book there on that website and talking a little bit about the speaking and stuff that I've done. And also, you know, there's an organization I started with my brother called modernspirit.org, which is trying to demonstrate the value of spiritual healing and modern healthcare. And so that's, you know, the, the research project with epigenetics is one of the major projects and then all the speaking and, uh, doing medical education with doctors and naturopathic students and Chinese medical students exposing them to Amazonian plant medicine. I just have to finally ask, is he related to Pablo Amoringo, the famous painter? Yeah, right. Everyone asks. Yeah, he claims that uh, if they are related, it's not a close relationship. You know, they're not directly related. They're two Amaringos from Pucallpa, so they might have some, you know, but he's not a close relative. No. Ricardo is, is uh, I don't know that they, I don't think they ever met. They're from the same area in Pucallpa. Um, but Ricardo is now living in Iquitos and is coming from... I'm not sure if Pablo Maringo is Shipibo. I don't know that he is. But Ricardo is Shipibo, and so they have their roots in a lot of Shipibo villages up upriver from Pucallpa. Whereas uh, I'm not, I don't know that much about um, Pablo's history. But a lot of his students have given workshops at Niwe Rao. You know, we've got uh, people like Luis Tamani and uh, Anderson, Di Bernardi, Royce Flores, and uh, Mauro Retegui. So I've been connected to the Pablo Maringo scene through, through the artwork because there's a lot of art promoted at Niwe Rao. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. Go to drjotafur.com. Now let's finish with a song from Yuin Husami's album Yakun Shama. Go to Yuin Husami, that's Y-U-I-N-H-U-Z-A-M-I, .bandcamp.com to hear more of his music. And this album he made, uh, you will experience traditional medicine songs, Icaros, set to modern beats. And the song I picked is called Icaro de Ayahuma. And if you haven't heard my episode with the artist Yuin Husami, you can listen to my talk with him all the way back in episode 3. All the links I mentioned and additional information can be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. We have time for one more episode before Satan comes. I mean, Santa. See what the difference one letter makes if you move it around a bit? Big difference. Anyway, there's one more episode in 2017. 
And uh, I hope I see you in a week. Freedom is in the mind.